Hey, how's it going, my friend? Excellent. Thank you for having me on today. Thank you for coming on. Whereabouts in the world are you? I am in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. Right, and I've been looking at your website today and seeing your mix of subjects, but we're going to be homing in on the Kennedy assassination. What got you interested in that? Well, I think like everyone else, I've been fascinated with Kennedy since the JFK film. Um, it was uh, The JFK film was very important for many reasons. Um, it ultimately led to the release of the JFK documents from the government that we've received so far, uh, and it got me interested in it. Um, little did I know at the time uh, that ultimately that was really a finely crafted piece of propaganda. Uh, but it, ultimately it, it did more good than harm. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of what got me started, but I really decided to go full-time into research in Kennedy in uh, July of 2018. And it's pretty much been my focus, uh, ever since I, uh, I run a podcast publishing company and that's kind of gives me the time freedom to, uh, engage in a lot of the research that I've done over the past six or seven years. So I had an obsession with Jim Mars years ago. I was watching all of his stuff. Are you familiar with his work? Um, I am familiar with his work. Um, Jim Mars, like a lot of the other Kennedy researchers out there, have uh, done a good job at bringing forth many of the dots that ultimately needed to be connecting, uh, needed to be connected. And uh, so I applaud him for that. Unfortunately, I find that Kennedy researchers have made no real attempts to connect any of the dots that they've dug up over the past almost 60 years now. So that's kind of what I focused on in my research. Really, what I wanted to know was who was the shooter on the grassy knoll. That was it. Um, and so just wanting that one question answered, really, uh, it, it encompassed my entire life. And it really uh, drew me down this rabbit hole that really has led me to a, a thorough understanding of what happened on November 22nd. Which dots are the most significant in your eyes? God, it's so hard to say. There are so many things. You have all the dots uh, around Oswald and Oswald's activities, or Oswald's alleged activities, I should say, uh, because in the course of my research, I've found that the vast majority, almost all of the things that we attribute to Oswald as having been incidents uh, that he was involved in or actions that he had taken, uh, he didn't do any of those things. Uh, Oswald had been being set up since he got back from the Soviet Union. And actually long before that, there were cases going back to January of 1960 of people using the name Lee Harvey Oswald, who happened to have a similar appearance to Oswald. Um, but the company that this other Oswald kept kind of gave his true identity away in the end. Um, ultimately, uh, once Oswald got back from the Soviet Union, there was a heavy effort put on to impersonate him in various places, uh, everywhere from Miami all the way to Dallas. And ultimately, these impersonations were being done by two men in particular, uh, William Seymour and Kerry Thornley. And so one of my the biggest problems I've had with Kennedy researchers over the years is that they've positively identified that somebody was impersonating Oswald at various places. Um, but there has been no real effort to identify those men, even though uh, the names of those men were all over the literature and in the ultimate uh, inner cast of characters. So, yeah, I'm, I've been very much let down by the JFK research community. Um, 
especially since in uh, the years that I've been working on this, I've been pretty much banned from every JFK forum. Uh, they just don't want to hear what I have to say. And um, I am seemingly one of the only people out there other than uh, a mutual associate of ours, Mr. Ryan Dawson, who would have to say if anyone is the world expert on Kennedy, it's Ryan. He just chooses not to talk about it uh, publicly, that is. So, All right, we've got a couple of questions on this dot then. So were those two gentlemen employees of the CIA or linked to the CIA in some capacity? And why was Oswald in Russia? Okay, so my opinion on why Oswald was in Russia is kind of different from the traditional um, ideas. He was definitely a false defector. I believe he was part of a program uh, run by the CIA called AE Balcony. A.E. Balcony was a program that utilized naturalized American citizens who spoke uh, fluent Russian and Baltic languages, and then they would redeploy them to the Soviet Union to act as spies, basically. Uh, that program ran from 1959 to 1962. What years was Oswald in the Soviet Union? 1959 to 1962. It's the exact years that A.E. Balcony was in operation. And even in the A.E. Balcony documents, which is only a couple, uh, they indicate that this, the program was overall a failure and that they were only able to extract one person who they had sent to the Soviet Union under that program. So I'm assuming we lost a bunch of spies that we sent over there to the Soviet government. Um, and I question whether or not Lee Harvey Oswald was the one person they referred to in those documents. But yeah, that, I mean, that's another thing. When you find a CIA operation trying to get naturalized American citizens who speak Russian into the Soviet Union, uh, and then you have Kennedy researchers studying Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, why the connection between the two has never been made, I really don't know. Um, and one thing I need to point out here is that I use the word naturalized, meaning not uh, born in America, meaning a citizen uh, who, who came from another country. And this kind of brings up the work of John Armstrong. And John Armstrong did a lot of work uh, on uh, the duplicate Oswalds going back all the way to 1947. And his work is kind of hard to argue with. Uh, there are duplicate records of Lee Harvey Oswald going to schools in multiple places up in New York in 1952-53, uh, in Fort Worth, in New Orleans, overlapping records between two different schools. Uh, John Armstrong did a great job showing that there were, in fact, two children raised under the name Lee Harvey Oswald, both having a different mother named Marguerite Oswald. I mean, it was definitely a CIA operation. And when you ask why was Oswald ultimately in Russia, I have to think that this was some sort of plot to get a spy into the Soviet Union. That's it. Why would they go to all the trouble of having like a duplicate child raised under the same name uh, with a duplicate parent identity? Um, and to me, it's pretty much... Uh, I would be kind of disappointed in the government if they didn't have a plan like this to get a spy into the Soviet Union back during the height of the Cold War, you know? So uh, when you talk about uh, duplicates of people, um, this is CIA modus operandi. And so it's not as crazy as people would think. And so I believe that Lee Harvey Oswald was ultimately part of this plot to get a spy in the Soviet Union. Uh, ultimately, he comes back with Marina, uh, who was definitely a spy for the Soviets. Uh, she was... Um, she was all in on the setup of Lee Harvey Oswald um, in the assassination plot. Uh, she had a relationship with Carrie Thornley and a lot of the incidents I've uh, identified as people saying they saw Lee Harvey Oswald in Dallas and in New Orleans where he was driving a car, yet he was seen with a woman and a child. Uh, ultimately, I found the proof that I needed to, to seal the relationship between Marina and Carrie Thornley. And then I realized that Marina had actually uh, forged signatures 
um, Alec Heidel and Lee Harvey Oswald on some photographs and on the selective service documents uh, that allegedly were found on Oswald that day uh, with the alias Alec Heidel. And so, yeah, Marina was in on the setup from from the jump. Uh, um, I believe that Oswald, in some respects, was kind of punished for bringing her back from the Soviet Union. I mean, the Russians weren't stupid. They knew he was a spy from the minute he got there. So they paired him with a spy to bring home, you know. <laughs> so um, I, I think that's part of it. But, you know, the they were setting Oswald up from the time that he had gotten to the Soviet Union. Uh, Bolton Ford in January 1960, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald allegedly tries to buy a bunch of Jeeps uh, to be sent to Cuba on behalf of the Friends of Democratic Cuba, which was an organization that had been started out of the 544 Camp Street address in New Orleans that was run by Guy Bannister, right? So they were really sloppy in their attempts and they left trails uh, back to 544 Camp Street. And I, I leave a lot of the blame for that on Kerry Thornley. Kerry Thornley was a heavy player in the setup here. Uh, in both in New Orleans and in Dallas. And I think a lot of his mistakes uh, led to uh, us being aware of the connections allegedly between Oswald and some of the players in New Orleans. So you think of these spies then as having like a sixth sense for trouble and danger and a high IQ, etc. Yeah, Oswald was in this role whereby he was being used left, right and center by everybody. <laughs> what, what was... The state of his IQ and his mindset and his intellect to ascertain what was going on? It's hard to say. We don't really know a lot about the real Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, most of what we know has been fiction that has been fed to us and told that this is who Lee Harvey Oswald was. Um, who knows, really? I mean, I think uh, despite the, all the books that have been written on Oswald, I think he's going to remain a mystery uh, forever. Um and there are no documents that the government's sitting on that will prove anything else. I know Jefferson Morley just came out recently uh, with a press release proving that Oswald was CIA. Well, I find that interesting. Um, you know, he didn't mention anything about A.E. Balcony, uh, which he should have, because that was the CIA program that he was over in the Soviet Union under. Uh, but also, there is um, significant evidence that Oswald was also working with naval intelligence. Uh, the final phone call that he made from the jail to, to John uh, Hurt in uh, Raleigh, just outside of Nags Head. Um, there is a very deep story behind that phone call, which basically leads right to his naval intelligence handler. But uh, that is a story that uh, you're going to have to get from Mr. Dawson, who has the details on that one, uh, who's very tight-lipped as far as that incident goes. But yes, um, it's obvious that Oswald was working for both naval intelligence and the CIA. Um and to me, I think the real kicker, and this is something that no one else really ever has considered, but I think the proof that Oswald was being framed comes from his presence or lack thereof in the book depository on November 22nd, 1963. I do not believe that Lee Harvey Oswald was present in Dealey Plaza at all on November 22nd, 1963. I believe that his employment, alleged employment at the book depository was just another CIA front. All the evidence, alleged evidence we have of him working there are nothing more than props that were provided by men who had been associated with intelligence going back to the early days of the OSS, meaning Bill Shelley and O.V. Campbell and Roy Truly and all the guys who ran the book depository. Uh, the book depository was a, definitely a CIA front. Uh, it, 
you have to think, I mean, is the government going to trust the publishing of textbooks, which is where the narrative begins in our schools and brainwashing our children? Do you, is anyone actually believe that the CIA is going to trust any Joe Schmo company to publish textbooks? No. Every There were four or five companies in the Texas School Book Depository. They were all involved in CIA publishing, uh, Macmillan, Southwest. Uh, there was a whole bunch of them, Scott Forsman. Um, when you look into these companies, they're all CIA publishing companies and everybody who worked in the book depository, minus the secretaries, you could tell the secretaries didn't know anything about anything because of their conflicting statements uh, compared to what the head of the book depository uh, were saying. Um, but yeah, it was a CIA front. I mean, how else do you think you're going to get at least three shooters into the building, have them hang out there on the sixth floor and the roof for at least 15 minutes and then get them out of the building? And yet nobody happened to see anything. Um, it was it was completely set up. William Shelley was in on it. William Shelley was the boss of the employees at the depository under Roy Truly, who was the uh, he was technically the manager. And then the vice president of the company was O.V. Campbell. Like I said, all these guys were OSS during World War II. Um, and um, Roy Truly was actually uh, indirectly connected to Oswald already. Uh, he was married to a woman who was the cousin, the first cousin of Fred Korth. And Fred Korth was, at the time of the assassination, Secretary of the Navy. He was uh, the head. Of, he was involved with naval intelligence uh, back when Oswald's brother, John Pick, was involved with naval intelligence. And then Fred Korth was the lawyer involved in the divorce between Marguerite Oswald and a guy named Ekdahl, who was her first husband. Right. So Fred Korth was all kinds of up involved with Oswald's getting back from the Soviet Union to the United States. And it just so happens that his first cousin is married to Oswald's boss at the book depository. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and then the book depository, obviously, it was owned by D.H. Byrd. Uh, D.H. Byrd, also one of the founders of the uh, Civil Air Patrol that Oswald was allegedly involved with. So, yeah, this is a, a den of espionage and it sits adjacent to the Daltex building, which is run by uh, Morris Jaffe, um, Sam Bloom, um, who else? Uh, Abraham Zapruder was one of the shareholders of the Daltex building. And that is really where the, um, the real um, ground zero for the conspiracy took place. I can trace meetings with uh, the highest levels of the three-letter agencies, FBI, CIA, Secret Service, all having meetings with Sam Bloom, who sat on the board of the Dallas Citizens Council. And that was the organization in charge of organizing where the motorcade was supposed to go, right? And so I have the documents, they've been out there forever, uh, showing the dates and times when Sam Bloom met with all these people. And that was absolutely when the coordination uh, with these three letter agencies uh, for the assassination took place. Because I can tell you with 100% certainty, the Secret Service agents in the follow-up car were a crucial part of the assassination, and they aided in the escape uh, by the grassy knoll shooter. Okay, so yes, the FBI, the CIA, the Secret Service, um, all of them were involved. Uh, the number of people who actually had inner knowledge that the assassination was going to happen. You know, at first, when I started to think about it, I figured a huge conspiracy. Most people don't know what they're getting involved with. Like mob guys go out and they commit jobs. They don't know what jobs they're doing. They're just one link in a chain. But the amount of people who actually knew that the assassination was coming is in the hundreds at this point in my research. And uh, the people who were sworn to protect Kennedy were at the heart of it. We've got a question from one of the viewers, Fred. He said, did Oswald's parents ever emerge? Well, we ha <laughs> that's a good question. Um, his father, no, Robert Lee Oswald, allegedly died in 1939. But all the pictures of 
Robert Lee Oswald, who are allegedly his father. They happen to look uh, strikingly like a guy named J. Walton Moore, who was an uh, FBI slash CIA agent in Dallas, friends with George DeMornshield, who introduced Oswald to DeMornshield. So they're playing games with us with the photographs that they say are of Oswald's father. Um, we have no information on who Oswald's father actually was. I mean, I don't believe any of the information surrounding the parentage of Lee Harvey Oswald um, other than we can prove some familiar relations in New Orleans, uh, like through Charles Moret, who was his uncle, who was working for Carlos Marcello. Like we ha we can prove some family lineage there. But as far as his father goes, um, yeah, I don't I don't believe what they tell us. And as far as his mother goes, uh, there's clear evidence that there were two women living as Marguerite Oswald, uh, whose photographs look really nothing alike uh, with overlapping years in these photographs between like 1957 and 1962. And the woman the world has come to know as Marguerite Oswald is certainly not the woman who uh, we were sold as Marguerite Oswald in all of the early photographs of uh, Oswald uh, growing up and with his family in New Orleans. It's a completely different woman. Uh, one woman wears glasses. The other doesn't. The other has a mole directly under her eye. The other doesn't. Uh, and this is evident in overlapping years of photographs. So, yeah, the CIA went all out to try to hide the identity of a person, like I said, I don't think it was some crazy plot. It was just another CIA tactic to get a spy into the Soviet Union. And that's that's why it seems so crazy to the average person. Okay, you've got another question coming for you, Corey. What does Mr. Hughes make of Marina Oswald Porter selling her husband's wedding ring in 2013? Profiteering, she got £68,000. Yeah, well, you know, everybody ended up profiting off Kennedy's death in one way, shape, or form. I think there could be more to... The reason that she sold that, I mean, honestly, with all the people who were impersonating Oswald, the fact that she was she was seen with Carrie Thornley, who was setting up Oswald. So she was involved in the direct setup. So whether or not the marriage was like ever a real marriage is who knows? Who knows? Uh, that could just be another uh, part of this performance that we've been given. So, so yeah. So we've heard various factors being the motive. Uh, Kennedy saying he was going to split the CIA up into pieces. There was a tax on the oil barons of Texas. There was the military-industrial complex. There was the mafia's role. Um, what could you, could you give us the list of possible motives in in order of how you would prioritize them? Yeah, um, I'll say that there's there was one motive. Uh, and that motive was Kennedy was going to end Israel's nuclear program. That was it. Uh, Israel had been <laughs> um, Israel had been working behind the scenes since the 1950s to build a nuclear reactor. Uh, Zalman Shapiro uh, set up the NUMEC uh, Nuclear Materials and Equipment Corporation outside of Apollo, Pennsylvania. Uh, where he had enriched, you know, Ryan Dawson's film uh, on this, uh, Numac, is absolutely stunning. Uh, everybody needs to watch that to understand, to understand that that was a really big deal. They were stealing our nuclear materials, 600 pounds of uranium over a, you know, nearly 10 year period that made its way to Demona. And Kennedy didn't particularly know the details of that at the time, but he knew all kinds of things. I mean, he was aware of the Sonborn Institute going back to 1945, the large scale smuggling operation that the Israelis had been, you know, stealing all of our World War II surplus and shipping it back to Israel to fight the Palestinians because we wouldn't help. Right. The Americans told them to pound sand. We're not about to get out of one war just to help you go fight another one. So what do they do? They, they the, uh, Ben Gurion himself gets with Rudolf Sonborn. 
uh, and running out of a hotel room in New York City, uh, they end up establishing, establishing this massive uh, arms smuggling operation that, in my opinion, lasted for more than 20 years, involved David Ferry and his guys in New Orleans who had broken into numerous bunkers to steal arms and ammunition, allegedly for the Anacaster Cubans. But guess what? The Anacaster Cubans, and why did the Bay of, why did the Bay of Pigs fail? Why did the Anacaster Cubans not rise up? Because they didn't get any of the money or any of those weapons, okay? All the money and all those weapons got diverted to Israel. And that's why the Bay of Pigs was a failure. That's why there's never been an uprising in, in Cuba. And if you ask me, um, all the alleged attempts against Fidel Castro's life are all CIA propaganda. Um, they were still working with Castro long after the Bay of Pigs in smuggling operations, um, you know, bouncing from Cuba to Haiti and then to uh, Israel and other places. So, like... I don't buy for a second any of those stories that they tried to take out Castro. I think those were all BS stories so that they could just, you know, milk the government for more money. We have to fight this communist threat so we can get all this money, you know, but that wasn't enough for them. And they had to turn to drug, uh, the drug uh, trade, uh, you know, managed Menachem Begin and Meyer Lansky set up the smuggling routes between Venezuela and Saigon. Right. So, um, you know, and all of that, all, all, this cabal really is what it is. And everyone wants to know who's the cabal behind everything. And ultimately it's in the modern era, it's the United States and Israel. Um, at the time of 9-11, it was obviously United States, Israel, and the Saudis with a little involvement from the Pakistanis. But really, um, everyone fucking hates us is really the bottom line. And so uh, it's us and Israel, and we're behind everything. Um, the, the, this partnership that we've had really goes back to post-World War II uh, deal between the OSS, the pre-Israeli Zionists, and Reinhard Galen, um, who... You know, the, the OSS uh, post-war between 45 and 47, there was no alleged intelligence commu uh, community in America, right? Their CIA hadn't formed, the OSS had been dissolved. But in that time, about the 18 months to 24 months between the two, they were busy as hell shipping Nazis from, from Northern Africa and Europe into South America. And they went on to form what's called the Galen Organization. And the Galen organization is the remnants of the Nazis post-war. And they went on to, and Reinhard Galen went on to basically become um, the architect of NATO, uh, the 17 intelligence agencies that all formed in 47. I mean, we are living in a security state formed by um, Adolf Hitler's spy master. That's, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to argue with. And so that really is the relationship that, uh, th th those are the partnerships that were really behind the assassination. But one thing um, that I still need to uh, spend some time on is the Galen organization and their subtle disappearance into history. Because, you know, you have a multi-million people organization uh, full of uh, Nazi spies and people who worked for the Nazis before and after the war suddenly just disappear into the modern day intelligence apparatus. And it's like, hmm, what happened to them? So, yeah, I plan on spending some time on the Galen organization coming up very soon. Okay, so your motive is there then, and the apparatus went into effect. What was the role of the mafia? Because we spoke to Michael Francis, <laughs> and his dad you know, told him various things about the role of the mafia in this. Well, I don't see any difference between the mafia, the CIA, and the Israeli Mossad in 1963 at all i mean you, you can't differentiate between these organizations and you can look at the relationship between the mafia and the israelis going back to like 46. um so ben gurion uh, sends reuven daphne to meet with uh bugsy siegel in los angeles and you gotta remember like all these mobsters are jews 
So one thing, I, one real refresher I need to give real quick. Everyone really thinks that the uh, the Italians, right, the Sicilians, is, when people say the Italians run the mob, what they're really thinking is the Sicilian Italians run the mob. But that's false. The Sicilians only ran the mob from 1921 to 1931. Um, 1931, a hit was put out on Joe Masseria and Sal Maranzano, the two top Sicilian bosses in the U.S. Mafia, by who? Meyer Lansky. And Meyer Lansky was a Jew. And his men who worked for him um, Lucky Luciano, Albert Anastasia, you know, Lucky Buck Alter, all these guys, these were all Jews, right? Um, Bugsy Siegel, Mickey Cohen. The mafia basically post-1931 was run by Meyer Lansky and the Jewish side of the mafia. Um, all of the known Italian bosses had were basically front bosses. Like Giancana was supposed to be the powerful boss of the country. He worked for a guy named Hyman Larner, who was a Jew who worked for Meyer Lansky. Meyer Lansky controlled the mob from 1931 all the way till the late 1970s when he went on the run. And other people will try to like say that he didn't and that there were various sects within the mob. At the end of the day, no. Uh, Meyer Lansky made more money for the mob than any person in mob history, uh, mostly through the narcotics trade. But I mean, he got his start back in you know New York with Murder, Inc. Uh, and it grew from there. And so... That's kind of really the, the, the true story behind the mob. So they're really one organization. You go to 1946 when Bugsy Siegel starts meeting with Reuven Daphne from the Haganah, uh, uh, an Israeli terrorist organization. And so he basically funds Reuven Daphne to the tune of $50,000. And that becomes the beginning of the relationship between the Israelis, the pre-Israeli Zionists, and uh, the U.S. Mafia. And then you have by 49, Mickey Cohen, his personal rabbi was Menachem Begin. And so you have this connection from Jack Ruby directly to Menachem Begin, who I believe was in Dealey Plaza on November 22nd, um, through uh, through Candy Bar. So Jack Ruby had a dancer working for him named Candy Bar, who was a cohort of his all through the weekend of the assassination. Um, and she was uh, having an affair with Mickey Cohen. She was sleeping with Menachem Begin. And, you know, she is basically the link between all these guys and kind of the proof that Jack Ruby was definitely involved in the mob. But like I said, most people don't understand the mob. Like Jack Ruby was, he was outside the hierarchy of the, of the Sicilians. And he worked directly for Meyer Lansky, Hyman Larner, and these guys. So that was Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby was a lifelong mobster, worked under Al Capone. And, you know, two of his best friends growing up, Lenny Patrick and Dave Yaris, uh, two uh, were present in Dealey Plaza. Dave Yaris was one of the shooters that day um you know uh they were present in daily plaza and they were signed in to the uh, cabana in the night before right so we have direct connections between jack ruby and uh you know old school hardcore chicago gangsters uh who were present in dallas so really what i like to tell people the study of kennedy like forget about all the propaganda that you heard like it's the study of relationships when you come to understand who these people are and what their relationships are with each other like all these answers will fall right into place they really become quite obvious um like jack ruby particularly jack ruby most people think that jack ruby was present in the hallway of the police department on November 22nd, and then he was seen at the uh, press conference that night, right? He was also captured on, on film at the Dallas Morning News that morning, right? Um, well, all three of those images of Jack Ruby are not Jack Ruby. There was brother Samuel, who's nearly identical, about 11 months younger than him, and he was providing alibis for Jack Ruby, who Jack Ruby dipped to Galveston right after the assassination. Jack Ruby gets the order to kill Oswald from a guy named Al Gruber, who was the right-hand man of Mickey Cohen, and after that, he has to go to Galveston because he has to bring people back to the port. So um, all of the appearances of Jack Ruby over the weekend in Dallas were not Jack Ruby. They were his brother, Samuel. 
Um, so I forget my point. I go off on tangents sometimes because there's so many um, connecting pathways to all the things that we talk about. Yeah, so we're going over the dots in order of significance. You've covered Oswald. You've covered the Israeli motive. What would you say is the next important dot? Well, for me, the thing that's really stuck out the most is uh, the cover-up, right? The cover-up is a massive dot. And the, see, the people involved in the cover-up are not necessarily people involved in the assassination. So one thing I like to remind people is that um, conspiracies are not, and I don't like to use that word very often, but uh, to get the point across, conspiracies are not about people getting together in a you know smoky room uh, talking about killing the president. It's about taking orders. All of these groups involved are organizations with hierarchies and you do what you're told and you keep your mouth shut. And that's how you can have a, you know, that's how you can have hundreds of people involved and nobody says a damn thing. Because if you do, um, the hierarchy will react, you know, so. Um, what was your question again? So we're on the third dot. We did Oswald as the first right. dot. The cover we did the Israeli motive as the second dot. And now you said the cover-up is, is the next most important. Right. Part. The cover-up is just so blatant. I mean, like, when you get into the, the how many shells were allegedly found under the window and how many, you know, bullets were actually fired and all this stuff, there's so much contradictory information. I mean, the they allegedly have the three shells accounted for, right? Uh, the first uh, bullet hits Kennedy in the back and then goes to Connolly, the magic bullet, which I can explain here uh, shortly. Uh, and then you have the bullet that missed, hit the curb, and then the curb struck James Tague. And then you have the fatal headshot, so they have three shots. Uh, and they allegedly have the magic bullet is the only bullet that was recovered. We have the documents from James Hume, uh, who did the autopsy at Bethesda, where they recovered another bullet. We have another document from the Secret Service where they recovered two additional bullets from the limo um, after it was relocated to Washington, D.C. So, right, so we have their own documents with uh, additional showing that they have additional bullets. But the official story is, uh, you know, it was three shots, uh, which is even a lie, because honestly, when you go through the, the chain of custody on the shells, the shell casings and the bullets, um, you'll find that they, were, they only recovered two, two holes underneath the window. Two shell casings. Um, there wasn't a third shell casing for five days. There's no indication or record of a third shell casing uh, until the 27th of November when they realized they needed another bullet and so they fabricated another casing. Um, right. So yeah, the cover up is is it's stunning. It's 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 just unbelievable, and it's it could just because it's so blatant, right? Just because it's so blatant. Um, now, the next dot that we should talk about really is the dot that everyone really wants to know and understand. And that is, was there a shooter on the grassy knoll and who that shooter was? And the answer to that is there were two shooters on the grassy knoll. Um, the two shooters on the grassy knoll were David Ferry, who was the key person in Garrison's investigation. Um, and the other shooter who took off Kennedy's head was the one and only Jack Valente. And Jack Valente, if you don't know, is the man who ran Hollywood. Uh, as the head of the Motion Picture Association of America, uh, at the behest of the Central Intelligence Agency from 1966 until 2004. And then Jack passed away in 2007, where he is now buried in um, 
Arlington Cemetery in Washington, D.C. And allegedly he's buried there because of his short stint in the military um, during World War II, where he allegedly was a bombing hero, did 51 bombing missions, which I really can't seem to find because I have documents showing he was in America for all but six months during the war. Uh, so his entire war record is faked. Everything about the guy is faked. And uh, he is far more than uh, just some Hollywood stooge. Um, if you don't think that the, C that the CIA runs Hollywood, you're gravely mistaken. And Jack Valente is the proof. We have documents from the Jack Valente file showing that he was employed in a government agency that required transfer to the White House payroll on November 22nd. So uh, on November 22nd, Jack Valente goes to work in the White House. All right. So... Um, the series of events goes uh, after, and I'm, I normally would show a, a slideshow, but I'm going to hold off on that today. Um, if you want to get all this information, I'm working on a book that will be out in the next two or three months. And uh, that's where you can find all the details on this. But basically, Jack Valente, um, when you dig into who he is and the aliases that he's used, uh, I've connected him to the mob in Tampa through Traficante, where Traficante connected him to Frank Sturgis where he ended up training with the guys down in No Name Key uh, down in late 62 and early 63 before he was working in the White House or for the government or any of that stuff. Um, the people that he's associated with is just, it's a who's who of uh, CIA, government, Hollywood, uh, politics, you name it. Um, his story goes basically... Back when he was 15 years old, he was born into two mob families, the, the George family, uh, which was a Houston-based mob family that kind of went extinct, really. The Houston mob kind of fell apart after the 1950s. <coughs> and he was born into the Valenti family, and his father's name was Giuseppe Valenti. And when you start to dig into his father, his father has a long, shady history with the mafia going back to like um, the early, early 1900s. He then gets his father gets arrested for embezzlement from the city of Houston, where he was working as a in the Treasury. Uh, but the FBI had files on his father, pages and pages long that involved all kinds of stuff, sedition, um, faking citizenship. I mean, you name it, two or three pages of individual files they had on this guy. So, yeah. So he comes from a family that's straight mob. By the time he's 15, he's working for Humble Oil, Humble Oil owned by Prescott Bush. Uh, so. Starting and he worked there for 17 years. He worked there all during the years that George Bush would have been there in office. Um, he worked there during the time that George DeMornshield worked for Humble, uh, Humble Oil um, when he came to the U.S. in 19, I believe, 1936 or something like that. So um, 36, that's actually the same year that uh, Valenti got the job there, 1936. So from there, he goes to the University of Houston at night while he is uh, working on, he's still working for Humble Oil during the day, going to get his degree at night. He ends up going off to the war where I believe they faked his war record. I believe at this point he's uh, in, in intelligence uh, by the time World War II comes around because he's a sniper, right? And I believe I've linked him to other murderers besides John Kennedy. Um, and so he had to have specialized training. And so... Plus, I also know that there's an entire cache of documents on him that I haven't found yet that Mr. Dawson likes to tease me over. So, <laughs> um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, he goes off to the wharf. I believe the whole record is fake. He comes back. He graduates from the University of Texas and he applies to where Harvard Business School, where they reject him because he's a BC student. Um, well, he ends up flying up to 
uh, Harvard. And after a weekend of uh, partying with the head of uh, with the dean of the college, he's accepted in with honors where he forms a relationship between 1946 and 1948 with who Henry Kissinger, who is running student organizations and is a top dog uh, and connection between the, the newly formed CIA um, and Harvard at that time. So um, but yeah, from then on out, you have uh, Valenti starts a, an ad agency. And allegedly, he's just running an ad agency called Weekly and Valenti out of um, out of Houston. Um, and so, by 1960, he is uh, tasked with the advertising for the uh, Kennedy presidential campaign. Uh, he does all Lyndon Johnson stuff because he and Lyndon Johnson hooked up back in 1956. And when I say hooked up, I mean that literally um, because when you dig into Valenti and you come to understand the relationship between Valenti and Johnson, you come to understand that Johnson was kind of this guy who was he'd have sex with pretty much anything. And um, there was definitely evidence of a sexual relationship between Lyndon Johnson and Jack Valente. And Jack Valente was gay. Um, ultimately, he went on to marry Lyndon Johnson's secretary, Mary Margaret Wiley, who became Mary Margaret Valenti. Um, they had two children. And I promise you, those children are Lyndon Johnson's. Uh, they are not Jack Valenti's kids. <laughs> um, if you Google LBJ and Courtney Valenti, which is the name of the daughter, you will find hundreds of photos of LBJ hugging this little girl and carrying her around the White House. And it's a little creepy if it's not your kid. So, yes, um, there's, a, there's a whole sordid backstory there. Um, but on November 22nd, 1963, um, well, I'll back up just a little bit. Uh, the entire trip to Texas was at the request of Jack Valente. Jack Valente, I believe, was put through some sort of um, weird initiation through his participation in the assassination. Because not only did he send the letter inviting Kennedy to Texas, he hosted all the events. He organized Him and his company organized all of the events that, that Kennedy spoke at. He also sat on the board of the Dallas Citizens Council with Sam Bloom who oversaw the routing of the motorcade. It was Jack Valenti's company, Weekly and Valenti, that released the details of the motorcade uh, on the 18th of November, right? So this is a really big deal because they say that Lee Harvey Oswald saw in the, in the newspaper the route of the motorcade um, as, uh, on the 18th, and that's how he planned to kill the president on the 22nd. That was all done by Jack Valenti. The route of the motorcade was part in part planned by Jack Valenti, and then Jack Valenti is the shooter on the grassy knoll the quintessential grassy knoll shooter. David Ferry fired the first shot and that struck Kennedy in the throat. When he grabs his, his neck like this, he was not shot from behind. He was shot from David Ferry from the front. And the series of events that led me to identify David Ferry took me a long time. But ultimately, we have a description of the same man given from behind the grassy knoll by a guy named Ed Hoffman. Ed Hoffman sees a guy shoot the rifle, turn around, throw it to another man. Uh, whom I identified as Andrew Jerome Blackman. Um, and so David Ferry throws the rifle to Blackman. Blackman breaks it down, puts it into a toolbox. Um, Ed Hoffman says that this man, who he describes as wearing a uh, black hat and a blue jacket, which later when he films uh, with uh, Oliver Stone during JFK, he clarifies that the guy was wearing a black felt hat with a wide band and a dark blue suit jacket, okay? Um this person is then photographed on the pergola after the assassination. They're then photographed walking in the railroad yards. We then have the, a witness named Velma who called into Coast to Coast AM, November 22nd, 2006, and gives her testimony. First time anyone's ever heard from this woman named Velma. 
Uh, and she basically describes this man with the black felt hat, uh, dark suit, and he has real heavy eyebrows and he's sitting in a gray Plymouth. Um, and basically there's an interaction between this person and J.D. Tippett, which, again, most people you know, think is BS, but I completely believe it. Uh, J.D. Tippett is the police officer who will be shot shortly after Kennedy is uh, assassinated uh, in Oak Cliff. Um, so I'll, I'll continue with David Ferry because it connects directly to the Tippett shooting. So David Ferry, the reason that David Ferry had real heavy eyebrows was because he had to paint them on because he had no hair. And most people think that he had alopecia. He didn't have alopecia. There are numerous references to David Ferry having been a U-2 pilot in the Kennedy literature. And when you study the early U-2 pilots, the pressurization of the suits at 70,000 feet caused many of the initial pilot test pilots to lose all their hair and never grow any of it back. I believe that is what happened to David Ferry. I do not believe he had alopecia. There's no evidence he had alopecia at all. So, but that's the reason that he painted on his eyebrows. And that's why he's always described as having real heavy eyebrows everywhere he goes. Um, from there, I trace that gray Plymouth to the Tippett shooting where J.D. Tippett is ultimately shot by two people. He shot three times by Kerry Thornley. He shot one time by David Ferry. I trace David Ferry to the scene by tracing the vehicle, which has, is described by three people at the Tippett shooting as having been present. They also describe a man on scene who was reloading a revolver at the time who had a dark felt hat and a dark blue jacket on. Hello. Same description as the grassy knoll between the two witnesses there. I then am able to trace the vehicle um, that David Ferry will eventually leave Dallas in a light blue Ford Falcon station wagon. Um, I'll eventually locate the address that that was stored at. And I will trace David Ferry leaving Dallas that night, heading to Hammond, Louisiana, where he hides out the entire weekend with a guy named Thomas Compton. And I have all the documents to back all of this up. Um, many people know the story of David Ferry going to the Winterland Ice Arena, which is an ice rink that David Ferry allegedly went ice skating on. And this was his alibi. He couldn't have killed the president, couldn't have been involved because he was ice skating with two kids in, in Houston. Um, well, he didn't, go to, he didn't go to Houston. The guy who went to Houston was a guy named Sergio Arcacha Smith. And he was basically posing as David Ferry there. And then you know, uh, when you look at the testimony in the Warren Commission of the guy who was present at their ice skating rink, it becomes apparent that the ice skating rink is a CIA front. And ultimately, what I found out was that the owner of the Winterland Ice Rink, which was meant to provide an alibi for David Ferry, was owned by Lyndon Johnson. The, John <laughs> the Johnson family enterprise owned tons of real estate throughout Houston, and I... I just so happened to get into a Facebook group formed in 2018 by people who actually used to go ice skating at the Winterland. And they shared all their old memories, all the stories, all the pictures. And Richard Rowland, who allegedly was the son of Rulon Rowland, who testified at the Warren Commission that he saw David Ferry, um, he basically acknowledged that Lyndon Johnson was the owner. And it's the first time anyone has ever made that determination. And so um, <laughs> people who think that like that David Ferry went there and it was just like some, eh, he just went ice skating and it wasn't some sort of alibi, like they're crazy. And when you really kind of wonder like what was going on with the Winterland, it was a CIA front. The woman running it was named Mary Boots Roberts, who actually in her, in her um, obituary says she goes on to work for um, the NASA for the Gemini and Apollo missions. But anybody who knows anything about NASA knows they were an intelligence front and they were basically putting people on payroll and funneling money to the CIA. Um, and so, yeah. Um, and yeah, there's the big story, Mary Boots Roberts, who's definitely a CIA agent. Um, but ultimately, uh, she has the first cousin whose name is uh, Vincent Caltagrum Jr. 
who I identify as the short tramp in Daily Plaza. He's also the real Raul who set up James Earl Ray uh, in the Martin Luther King assassination. And Vincent Caltagrone Jr. is also the former brother-in-law of Jack Valente. Um, so yeah, you always, you constantly have these weird cycles and circles and connections and anybody who studies intelligence needs to study genealogies and families because the CIA likes to recruit families and you'll be amazed at who's related to who when you start to dig into this stuff. So, but, uh, yeah, so I forget where I was going with that. Well, tell us a bit more about David Farid then. Didn't he have a, a weird background, some bizarre sexual history or something? Yeah. David Ferry was, um, uh, people think that he was gay and a pedophile, and he definitely did some gay stuff and was definitely a pedophile. But I also found some information that showed he might have actually been married to a woman and possibly had a child uh, in Tampa, Florida in the 1940s. So I can't find any confirmation on it, and there's very little information. But um, he was a sexual uh, deviant. I'll put it, put it that way. Like, there was nothing too weird for him. Um He was definitely involved with Clay Shaw and these guys in New Orleans, uh, and they would have big orgies and stuff um there was oh one guy one kid who was in the civil air patrol named al landry actually brought a case against david ferry uh for molestation uh he woke up in the middle of the night and david ferry was naked on top of him molesting him um but david ferry also was a hypnotist uh he was a brilliant guy i mean he probably had a 200 iq um but he was a hypnotist and he would use hypnotism to get these kids to do some of these things um so, yeah, he was a real, real sick guy. Um, and once Garrison's investigation started, he was a big-time liability. Plus, he blackmailed Carlos Marcello, which is not a really good idea. Um, after the assassination, he basically he writes a letter to Carlos Marcello and says, hey, I did so much for you, uh, and I just got shit on, and I need, uh, I need some money or else uh, people might find out some things. <laughs> and so Carlos Marcello ends up giving him $50,000. And so what does he do with it? He opens a gas station. Um, which failed within like the first year. And then, um, yeah, and then he turns up dead once the investigation starts. So to me, it's not really much of a mystery what happened to David Ferry. He definitely didn't die of natural causes, um, especially not leaving two separate suicide notes. So um, it's funny. Well, I find this well, stuff really humorous. Wasn't he seeking protection around the time he was assassinated? That's what the movie says. That's not what reality says. Um, oh. So... When you go through the garrison documents, like uh, he thought that he was smarter than everybody, and he probably was, but he was kept trying to like spin them in these different directions. I mean, he would have them over. He would have garrison, and he would have people over to his house for coffee and stuff. But his house was like a disgusting pigsty, you know. And then he would try to woo them with his knowledge of medicine and all this other stuff. But um, I think that they could never really figure out what his role was. They knew he was involved. They didn't know how. Um, and until you put David Ferry in Dallas. You'll never know how. Um, and when you start to realize that every everything you hear about David Ferry and his alibis about going to Houston and all the connections behind the, the ice skating rink, when you realize it was just another, it was a staged event. The, the Winterland was a staged event in a long series of staged events that I include in that long series of staged events, Oswald's employment at the book depository and the events that happened there on November 22nd. Like, so uh, just like Tippett, another prearranged staged event that they were waiting for. And uh, Tippett was fundamentally... Um, executed, uh, set up in advance, the Texas theater. Fascinating information of what happened at the Texas theater. So I'll tell the story really quickly because it's, I just think it's amazing. So uh, Tippett is allegedly shot at 116 by Oswald, who walks eight tenths of a mile in like nine minutes. 
to kill him. Um, it's ridiculous. He was obviously driven there. Not uh, it was not it was not Oswald. It was Kerry Thornley, and he was driven from the boarding house where Kerry Thornley was staying, not Oswald. And he's basically um, there to meet Tippett there, and David Ferry is on scene already. And so the Tippett shooting goes down, and uh, Kerry Thornley flees the scene. Um, now Butch Burroughs, who is the manager of the theater, he. In the statements to the FBI and the Dallas police, they're heavily edited and he didn't tell them everything. But when you look at the interviews with him from years later, he's like, I couldn't tell him everything because, you know, I thought I was crazy. So, you know, they would thought I was crazy. I didn't want to have anything happen. So but he told numerous people later on what really happened in the theater. And so what really happened at the Texas theater is that Oswald showed up between one o'clock and one o seven. Um so the tippet shooting actually occurred at 106. So it was definitely not Lee Harvey Oswald. He was getting dropped off by a cab, I believe, driven by a guy named Bo Click, who picked him up in Fort Worth, because I don't believe Oswald was at the, at the Texas School Book Depository at all that day, anywhere near Dealey Plaza. I believe he gets to the Texas Theater, and he enters, he buys a ticket, um, and he the first thing he does is he goes up to the balcony, and he looks around, and there's nobody there, and he comes back down, and he walks into the main part of the theater. He then walks uh, down to the right side and he sits directly in front of a guy, young kid, about 18 years old. And then he gets up and sits next to this kid. Now, it's a 900 seat theater and there's only 20 people in the theater. So the kid's like, what is wrong with this guy? Mm -hmm. After a couple of minutes, Oswald gets up and goes and sits next to somebody else and does the same thing. Sits there a couple of minutes and then gets up and sits down next to somebody else like he's looking for somebody. Um, eventually, he sits down next to a pregnant woman and he speaks to the pregnant woman for a couple of minutes. And then both he and the pregnant woman leave to go back to the lobby. The pregnant woman leaves. He then buys popcorn at 1.15 p.m. from Butch Burroughs. He then goes back to his seat. Remember, the police don't storm that place for another 35 minutes. So Oswald is in the theater eating popcorn, watching a movie for a half an hour, not having any idea that anybody's coming for him. While he's in the theater... Um, 1.36, uh, the police are putting on their staged, you know, looking for the person who shot J.D. Tippett thing. And so Kerry Thornley ends up uh, and ends up at Hardy's Shoe Store. Inside Hardy's Shoe Store is a guy named Johnny Brewer. But there's actually two other guys in the store. One's named Tommy Rowe, who is a close friend of Jack Ruby. Uh, so close, in fact, that he ends up moving into Jack Ruby's apartment when Jack Ruby got arrested. Uh, to take care of his animals and stuff. So that's how close Tommy Rowe was to him. And there's another guy named Igor Vaganov, who's a low-level mob slash CIA guy. Not really overly important, other than he was providing a vehicle for Kerry Thornley to later escape in. So, um, But Kerry Thornley basically is the one who killed Tippett. And they're looking for Kerry Thornley. Kerry Thornley makes a stop in front of the shoe store, where obviously it's a point of contact for this is an entirely scripted and staged event down to the minute, even including when the cops show up. So... It's a big Truman show, really, is ultimately what it is. And everyone's in on it except for Kennedy and Oswald. And so um, he stops in the shoe store, 136. He then makes his way into the theater. And he's the one who enters without buying a ticket. He's the one who drew, made a scene um, drawing attention to himself. He then goes up to the uh, balcony and he stays there. Okay. Um, after Oswald is arrested in the theater, he's pulled out about 156. According to Butch Burroughs, Butch Burroughs says within two or three minutes of Oswald being arrested and pulled out the front, he said they arrested another Oswald out of the balcony and took him out the back. He said he couldn't believe it. He said they could have been brothers. That's how close they looked to each other. Um, and then we have another witness from the hobby store next door. So there's a, a, a hobby store directly next to the theater. He sees commotion out back. So the owner goes out back of the hobby store 
And he sees them arresting what he thinks is Lee Harvey Oswald later on. When he sees the news, he believes that he's seen the arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald out the back of the theater. So, yes, Kerry Thornley shot Tippett and then heads to the theater where he's arrested out the back. However, he's then let go because he is seen five minutes later, a couple blocks away, in a red Thunderbird. The red Thunderbird, which ends up being registered to Igor Vaganov, who was the second person inside Hardy's shoe store. So um, this, this, this tale can go on forever, so I'm going to try to cut this particular end part short. But ultimately, Kerry Thornley is arrested out of the theater from the balcony, pulled out the back, and then given Igor Vaganov's Red Thunderbird, uh, which is the last time we see him. Um, next connections to Kerry Thornley are involving phone calls made from hotels in Houston, where David Ferry allegedly stayed, to some radio stations uh, in New Orleans. So... Yeah, um, it's a fascinating, fascinating story. Uh, they couldn't pull anything off like this today. Uh, cell phones would have busted them in like five minutes, kind of like every other, you know, seemingly event that happens today, which gets debunked in five minutes because of a uh, cell phone video. This is why in 1963, when your driver's license didn't even have your picture on it, um, you know, they, they could get away with everything. Um, body doubles and all that stuff is modus operandi, you know. What was Ferry's cause of death? Um, God, ultimately, I think it was like a hypertension or something like that. Uh, unclear. Um, who knows? Who knows? Honestly, who knows? Uh, the, the CIA was working on like, you know, instant heart attack stuff back then, but they had all, they had 6 million ways to kill you. So who knows? Well, hundreds of people apparently died in the cover up. So who were the other prominent people who were taken out? Well, some of the more interesting ones were, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about two in particular. Richard Randolph Carr, who was a witness, who was working in an adjacent building. I think it was the county records building. He was up on the sixth or seventh floor, um, and he could see people in the book depository on the sixth floor. He could see the two shooters who were on the sixth floor of the book depository. Um, and he ends up, uh, they did numerous attempts on him. Uh, he, he, there were numerous attempts on his life. He ended up actually killing one of his assailants, um, but then I think eventually they ended up killing him. Uh, that's a Richard Randolph Carr is a fascinating story. And then you have the story of um, Clive Haygood. Um, Haygood was one of the, it was the Dallas cop who gets off the motorcycle and runs up the grassy knoll because he believes that he sees somebody up there and he did see somebody up there. And he actually goes on to make an arrest up there, which is completely covered up and erased from the record. Um, he ends up being run off the road in a single car accident, you know, brain damage, can't talk. And he, those two are, some of the more important witnesses who got killed because of what they actually saw and what they actually saw is just devastating. Uh, not only the official story, but to like the world, like if people were to really truly come to understand the underlying nuts and bolts of this assassination, their, 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 their grasp on what they think of reality would shift like it did for me completely. So I wrote a book about Barry Seal, and there was a theory that he flew the getaway plane for some of the hit team. Did you hear anything about that? Um, yeah, I don't believe that at all, because I don't believe there were any flights out for any of the hit team. Um, I can pretty much trace how everyone got out of Dallas, and nobody... Uh, well, um, two people, William Seymour and Lawrence Howard, uh, caught a flight, a CIA flight, um, uh, out of Dallas and uh, into uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, on the way to where William Seymour lived in Phoenix. So there's a book out by a guy named Robert Vinson. It's called Flight from Dallas. It is a fascinating piece of the puzzle 
especially for when you come to identify the people that he's talking about. So basically, Vincent is in the Air Force and he needs to catch a flight to Denver. Um, and so he's on an Air Force base and they're like, hey, that one's going to Denver. Go hop on that one. So he goes and he hops on the plane. And as mid-flight, uh, Kennedy is killed and it's announced over the loudspeaker. He's the only person on this plane, him and two pilots. And it's announced over the loudspeaker, um, President Kennedy was just assassinated in Dallas. And at that moment, that plane that he was on turns and heads to Dallas. That plane, according to Robert Vincent, then lands next to the highway in like an aqueduct or grassy area, and it picks up two men. These two men are identified. He identifies. He had one of them look just like Lee Harvey Oswald. He couldn't believe it when he saw Oswald's pictures in the paper. And he said the other one was a large, husky Latino with a pockmarked face, um, uh, which was a common description for a guy named Lawrence Howard, who was one of the shooters on the sixth floor. Um, William Seymour, who looked like Oswald, he was not a shooter on the sixth floor. I believe that day he was in the, he was basically there working in the book depositories, Oswald. I have no evidence. I can't find anything that would convince me yet thus far that Oswald worked at that book depository because we have at least a dozen incidents of Oswald being cited around the country or in other countries in Canada and Montreal in the October before the assassination when he was supposed to be at work. So I just don't believe Oswald worked there. I don't believe he was there that day. I believe William Seymour was working in the book depository as Oswald. Um, and so that's why everyone who says that they knew Oswald working in the book depository, they knew William Seymour. And then when you look at the third of the statements from people who worked in the book depository, none of them had ever seen Oswald, including his boss, Ovi Campbell. So yeah, like the evidence of Oswald having worked there is, you know, slim, just like all his other jobs. But um, I'm sorry, where was I going with that? I have a tendency to go off track because it's so I've got, a, I've got a quick question for you on that then. How impotent was Oswald's weapon? <sighs> Well, I mean, it was a piece of junk. It was uh, so the funny thing about it, it was like it was the um, official rifle of the uh, Italian army right during World War Two or something along those lines. It was considered to be the official symbol of fascism. And so I kind of think they chose that rifle as kind of symbolic because that th that rifle came in from through a, a shipping of rifles from a guy named uh, Samuel Cummings. Um, who owned a company called Adams Consolidated, who, in, in, who imported the rifle. And they imported the rifle to Crescent Firearms, which is the CIA front. And that, that from there, it went to Kleins. But there's really no evidence it ever went to Kleins. Uh, and then it shows up in Dallas, right? So, But we know that there were at least three manlickers that were involved in this group of people. David Ferry had a Carcano rifle, a guy named uh, Emilio Santana. He also had a Carcano rifle just like this. And then you have Really, there's probably three or four rifles that the government is saying is Oswald's rifle, because if you look at the serial numbers and how the serial numbers are printed on the rifle, over the years, how the printing on the rifle has looks kind of has changed, uh, which is kind of weird, because I don't know that serial numbers can just change arbitrarily. <laughs> so, yeah, there was a whole bunch. They were they were imported by Samuel Cummings in a, in a huge batch of like 70 or something like that. So we know exactly where the rifle came from. And Samuel Cummings also connected to Permandex through a guy named Enrico Fratoli. Um, and Permandex was the company, was the Mossad front company that organized and funneled all the money for the assassination. So really, like if you have to look at the hierarchy of how this went down and um, it, it goes from Ben-Gurion down to the heads of the Mossad, which at the time were um, Menachem Begin, uh, Yitzhak Shamir and Yitzhak Rabin. OK, so, I mean, these guys were in Los Angeles three weeks before the assassination. They meet with Al Gruber. They send Al Gruber to go meet with Jack fucking Ruby. And then that's the first phone call Jack Ruby makes after Oswald gets killed is to Al Gruber. Right. So that's the moment that Al Gruber gave the order from that sect of the like Israeli Jewish mafia, which, like I said, they're all one organization at this point. They're inseparable, you know, and then when you, you know, you connect these guys to the CIA, that's pretty easy to do. Um, 
You've had a few so, questions come in from the viewers. So Fred is wondering why was Kennedy in Dallas? Well, he was there because he wanted to basically, uh, you know, those campaigns campaigns were coming up and it was just a, a trip to kind of get to gather some, garner some goodwill from the Texans. But it really was, it was, not, it was a hostile environment for him in general. Like he shouldn't have done it. Like he should, never should have gone to Texas in the first place. Ray J has asked, I've seen pics of Officer Tippett. He was known as JFK in his station because he looked a lot like Kennedy. What was Tippett's role? A possible body double? Question mark. Yeah, I don't buy I don't buy any of that stuff at all. A lot of that was pushed by a film called uh, Everything's a Rich Man's Trick. Um, and that's a CIA propaganda film. Like people need to stop quoting that film. Everything in that film is direct CIA propaganda. Everything from the driver shot Kennedy to the uh, shot from the uh, storm drain, which is even more ridiculous. But yeah, that that was started by that film. Um, and so, no, I don't believe there's any connection there whatsoever. Uh, Tippett just had to die. Because uh, the cops, they needed to spark the cops into action, right? They needed the, the Texas theater to be stormed by as many cops as possible. And killing a cop was the only thing that was going to piss them off enough to do it, really. So, Agent Orange has asked, was Houston Mafia connected to Kennedy family running liquor from Mexico? Well, when you're talking to Houston Mafia, I mean, they're really defunct by like the mid-50s. You're talking like Joseph Lucia um and joseph lucia actually had a very close personal relationship with jack valenti when jack was growing up um and so and then you have like um god who was the other one cabela like the 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 houston mob really wasn't a thing really i mean you had the chicago outfit was running the gambling operations through lenny patrick um really it was lenny patrick down to jack ruby and that's kind of the, the the order of that and uh one thing that kind of gave away Lenny Patrick's involvement in the assassination, I don't think he was a shooter, he was a spotter for Dave Yaris, um, but that he used the alias of a guy named Isidore Max Miller. And that's where he kind of screwed up um, because that that alias um, he used in Dallas when he was there. And I was able to basically debunk that that person was a higher up in the mafia um, when he was being credited um, with being a, you know, uh, a top numbers guy so yeah like um it, it's really fascinating uh, going through these documents and like finding where they're lying where they're using aliases where there's contradictions you know trying to figure out like really on, on any any subject not just kennedy um matthew yeah, this- steeples has asked what does Corey make of craig cabell's book on the topic most he- notably, the bit about Lee Harvey Oswald being on the second floor of the building, drinking Coca-Cola, and thus unable to be the killer <laughs> on the sixth floor. Okay, yeah, that never happened. Like, Oswald was never on the second floor of the book depository. Oswald was not stopped by uh, Baker and Truly. So I'll tell you that I'll tell you the story of that. Um, basically, what you have is... I, I rewrote the entire timeline. So the timeline, according to the official story, is that, uh, and, and I'll say the official conspiracy theory, because there's always an official story, and then there's an official conspiracy theory, and then you have to get past that to get to the real truth. And so the official conspiracy theory has Oswald on the second floor of the book depository, drinking a Coke, seen by Officer Baker and Roy Truly, and then they cut him loose because he's an employee of the book depository. Okay, that's the official conspiracy. And the, that supposedly says that Oswald couldn't have shot the president because he couldn't have made it down the stairs uh, to drink a Coke in 90 seconds. Total fiction. Like that incident never happened. That uh, The incident that did happen happened between the fourth floor and the third floor. And I promise you it was not Lee Harvey Oswald. It was William Seymour. Uh, and the reason I know it was William Seymour is because William Seymour is captured 
uh, in the Robert Hughes film out back of the depository wearing a light brown jacket. When Baker and Truly stop this guy, their statements say that the guy's wearing a light brown jacket. Okay. Allegedly at 12.40 p.m., Oswald is said to have run out of the book depository, run down the hill, and then gotten into a light green Nash Rambler. That was not Oswald. It was William Seymour. And all of the witnesses who saw that described the same light brown jacket that he was wearing when he ran down the hill. So I have the same guy matching the same description outside the book depository in the minutes after the assassination. I then have the same person being stopped between the fourth and third floors by Baker and Truly, who cut him loose because because Roy truly covers for him and says he's an employee. And we know it's not Oswald. It, Oswald, I have no evidence Oswald's ever there that day. And so we have Roy truly covering for someone who's not Oswald, saying that he's Oswald as an employee in the fucking building, right? This is shady. And then two minutes later, this is where I rewrote that whole timeline because that allegedly happened 90 seconds after the assassination. No, it couldn't have because we have the statements of, of the reporter, um, Robert McNeil. Robert McNeil enters the book depository and he calls his home office in New York and he gets the timestamp of when that call was made and it was at 1236. And he tells in his statement, no police had entered the building prior to uh, his phone call. So no cops entered the building before 1236 as per uh, Robert McNeil, right? So that puts that entire incident more than 90 seconds. It puts it 1237 at the earliest. And then it totally coincides with the timing of the person running out of the book depository and down the down the hill and getting in the Green Nash Rambler. And that was because it was William Seymour. William Seymour was working at the depository, posing as Oswald. Oswald, I'm telling you, he never worked there. And he didn't even admit that he worked there. When he's asked about it afterwards, he's asked, were you in that building? When he does, He gives a great spy answer. He says, naturally, if I work in that building. That was his answer. He didn't say, yes, I was in that building. He said, naturally, if I work in that building, that is not a confirmation of anything. Um, and plus, we can't we can't really look to there's all kinds of alleged statements that Oswald made in custody. We can't believe any statements that anyone has said that Oswald made while in custody because they're all liars. They all were involved in covering this up. And so, you know, so where were the actual shooters positioned? Are, so on the sixth floor in the sniper's nest, you have Lawrence Howard, dark-skinned um, Hispanic. He's uh, half Mexican, half Irish. He's actually American. Um, he's a real husky guy, weighed about 250, 275 pounds, and he had numerous moles on his face. Uh, the, all the witnesses, um, Arnold Rowland and um, a whole bunch of others who saw the, the men with the rifles on the sixth floor, they described two men, one, both of them about six foot tall, one was a husky Latino pockmarked face or something wrong with his face. And that totally matches the description of two men, Lawrence Howard and Lauren Hall. Uh, and their, their third in the trio was William Seymour, who at this point in time is down on the first floor, um, who was seen by Carolyn Walters on the, on the first floor. And also I know he's there because he's guarding the elevators. So William Shelley, who was the boss of the book depository, right before uh, 1229, uh, witnesses in the depository say that the power of the building went out. William Shelley kills the power to the building at exactly 1229. Um, this is important because what was happening was they were planting the elevators on the sixth floor. They could not risk the elevators coming off the sixth floor and then the assassins being stranded there. And we know that the power was out because we have another witness, another woman named Vicki Adams. Vicki Adams on the second floor, she attempts to come down to the first floor. She pushes the button on the elevator and it doesn't work. So we know the power is still out. So she rushes down the stairs. When she gets to the bottom of the stairs, she sees Billy Lovelady and Bill Shelley. Bill Shelley, the boss of the depository, she sees them standing next to the power box. Okay. That has been erased from history. Um, I found a whole bunch of documents that were 
classified top secret and not declassified until the late 1970s. Multiple statements that she gave showing that William Shelley and Bill Lovelady were at the power box. They deny it. They uh, All their statements, they make no mention of being on the first floor. They were obviously there to kill the power. And why? Because they couldn't risk the elevators coming down for someone pushing the button, which is exactly what happened. Vicki Adams pushes the button. They would have been stranded up there. So Vicki Adams comes down the stairs. Bill Shelley flips the power back on. She goes running out the back door. Bill Shelley goes out the front door. And at that moment, Lawrence Howard and the man named Sergio Arcacha Smith, who was the shooter on the roof, come down the elevator and they flee out the back. This is seen by um, witnesses, uh, Richard Randolph Carr, again, who I mentioned earlier. He witnessed these two men leave the back of the book depository and get into a green Nash Rambler station wagon. Well, I happened to find a registration for a green Nash Rambler station wagon to Lawrence Howard, 1960. So yes, all these pieces just started to fall into place. Um, and then here's another thing. The other shooter, Lauren Hall, the other shooter on the sixth floor of the depository, he hid out in the building for at least four minutes. I have a picture of him crossing the street four minutes after the assassination happened. So why did he hide out in the building? How could he hide out in the building? I think because they felt comfortable there because William Seymour, who was working there as Lee Harvey Oswald, was there with him. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, the book depository is fascinating. Um, when you really dig into the guys there, you can, it's just so obvious that this is a CIA operation. So, Corey, you're saying that they were all in the same location, but there's, what about the theories that there was a triangulation, that the bullets oh, no, no, appeared no, no, to be no, coming no. from different... That wasn't all the shooters. That wasn't all the shooters. There was a okay. shooter at the Deltex building. I can, actually, if you want, I can screen share and show you some of this stuff. No, I'm just trying to get, uh, get you to tell us which um, yeah. locations the others were at then. So, uh, the Deltex building, it wasn't inside the windows of the Deltex. There was a shooter underneath the fire escape. There is a ledge that people have to step up onto to get to the fire escape. That's where the shooter was. And I determined that because I basically took the, the Alchins photo and I ran it through um, Photoshop and I ran a bunch of filters and I eventually found emerging from the darkness a hand, uh, two hands and a face in that area right there, hands in a position as if they were holding a rifle. So, uh, and that makes perfect sense because that person is Emilio Santana, and I believe that person gets arrested. I believe Baker, and this is another reason for the alteration of the timeline. Um, this person goes running north on Houston Street, and Baker, when you look at the uh, one of the films that shows Baker getting off his motorcycle, uh, he runs north on Houston Street and chases this guy. But then, allegedly, he's busting Lee Harvey Oswald You know, about 60 seconds later inside the second floor lunchroom it doesn't make any sense what i believe happened is that emilio santana fired the rifle from underneath the uh fire escape on that ledge he shot kennedy in the back twice um and he's responsible for the for shooting the curb over the top of the limousine that then struck james Tague in the face um that's pretty obvious when you line up all the where the shots hit and where the shooter was it's a straight line um and then from there, he gets off and runs north on Houston. I believe Baker arrests him. And there's, if you look at the Willis photo 10, um, Bill Willis took a bunch of photos. Photo number 10 clearly shows a man dressed all in black being arrested in front of the book depository. And one of the cops behind him is holding another rifle. And I believe that rifle is a Mauser 7.65, one of three rifles delivered to David Ferry by a guy named Frank Sheeran, who was uh, also called the Irishman mobster out of uh, New Jersey. So... Um, but besides that, uh, I also put Dave Yaris between the pergola and the fence. Um, between the pergola and the fence, there was definitely a shot there. Witnesses saw a rifleman there, and that is the person who fired the rifle that caused the bullet to lodge in the lawn across from the grassy knoll, which is eventually dug out by a guy I believe was uh, 
Gordon Novell. So you have that shooter there. And then you have the two shooters on the grassy knoll. You also have, um, you have a couple riflemen who I know were there, but I believe did not pull the trigger. Like Danny Green, um, the, the real Irishman. Uh, Danny Green, who went to war with the Cleveland mob and ended up getting blown up. Um, he was most certainly in Dealey Plaza. He was a sniper trainer in the Marines. Um, he then eventually gets out of the Marines and goes to work for the Genovese family in New York. He then makes his way to Cleveland, where he's working for James Licavoli and Leo Masseri. Um, and it was around this time that the assassination happens. After the assassination, he has a meteoric rise to fame in the Cleveland mob, taking over the Longshoresman, which I believe was a reward. And then when I really figured out that uh, Danny Green was the tall tramp in Dealey Plaza uh, because of a very unique curl in the front of his hair, it was like, oh my God, this all makes perfect sense. Then I identified the other two tramps. The old tramp was Leo Masseri, who was Danny Green's boss. And the short tramp was Vincent Caltagrone Jr., who I mentioned earlier, uh, was the former brother-in-law of Jack Valente, um, who I also identified as the real Raul, uh, who set up James Earl Ray. So, um, and then the final two shooters were Jack Valente and David Ferry, which I've already discussed. Fred wants to know, why won't they release the unredacted files? Okay, so the, here's the thing with the files. I think the vast majority of files they have are just, they're not, they're meaningless. The files that I've determined are worthwhile are three in particular. The files that have to do with David Morales, um, a guy named Charles the Blade Taurine, and a guy named Harry Haller or Harry Hall. And the reason is because these three files will show an intimate relationship with Jack Valenti, the shooter on the grassy knoll. So those three files, they have nothing to do with Kennedy. Jack Valenti got, got sloppy and he got involved in some weird um, deal of uh, shipping Jeeps to Cuba while he was in the White House. I mean, that got busted by the FBI. There's files on that and everything um, involving and the case was involving some like stolen letterhead. It was really strange. But Jack Valenti was a scumbag and he was a mobster and he continued these activities despite the veneer of being this head of the Motion Picture Association of America. I mean, really, the guy's a piece of work. And, um, did I answer the question? Yeah, Matthew Steeples has asked, what does Corey make of the King of Torts lawyer, Melvin Belly, representing Jack Ruby for free and attempting to suggest him legally insane and having a history of mental illness? And what do you make of Belly then getting fired and subsequently, years later, throwing his wife's dog off the Golden Gate Bridge during his $15 million divorce? There seems to be many very odd people in this story. Well, I'm, let me tell you a story. Uh, back in 1949, Gary Ween was a detective for uh, LAPD. And he was uh, his thing was investigating um, corruption and, you know, mafia involvement with government and stuff like that. And he had his sights set on Mickey Cohen. And he did a whole bunch of stakeouts of Mickey Cohen. And he got to understand Mickey Cohen's, you know, his routine, his people he surrounded himself with all that stuff really well. And he kept finding Mickey Cohen was hanging out with this little short, weird looking dude. And it turns out the short, weird looking dude was Menachem Begin. So Mickey Cohen had Menachem Begin as a lawyer, or not as a lawyer, as his personal rabbi in 1949. The two of them would also go back to a third gentleman's house where they would get prostitutes and bang hookers and do whatever. And that guy's name was Melvin Belli. So Melvin Belli had been plugged into this Zionist mafia sect going back 20 years, you know? So, yeah, it's to me, the fact that Melvin Belli was even Jack Ruby's lawyer in the first place is the ultimate 
proof of the connection between him and, and the Israelis. So, yeah, that's what I think of it. <laughs> so, why do you think his brother was taken out? Whose brother? Robert Kennedy? Jay yes. Um, I'm not a, I haven't gotten to Robert Kennedy. I'm probably not gonna. Um, but same thing. Um, he was rising to power. He was going to do all the same things that Kennedy, John F. Kennedy was going to do. And it was, of course, the same people who took him out. Um, of course, uh, Robert Kennedy was shot by Thane Eugene Caesar. Uh, I mean, that's pretty obvious. Uh, the security guard who was walking behind him. Uh, I know recently they recovered the gun that was disposed of used in that assassination. So hopefully something will come of that. Um, but yeah, that one I'm not really an expert on. Um, the next thing I'm going to get to is probably going to be Martin Luther King, because I have a striking suspicion that Jack Valenti was involved in the assassination of Martin Luther King, seeing as how Raul was his former brother-in-law, obviously still a uh, partner with him at the time of the Kennedy assassination. And uh, Jack Valenti was uh, traveling uh, at the time of the assassination, and I can't find any documentation on where he was traveling to. So, you know, so who knows? Is, is Malcolm X on your radar as well? No, nah, probably not. Like I kind of end up, my fascination in history ends in 68 um, with Robert Kennedy and, you know, Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. And that's kind of it for me. Um, really this, if you want to understand uh, the Kennedys and all, and all this stuff, you really have to start back in 1897 with Theodore Herzl and Zionism. That's where it all begins. Like that's, that's why nobody can figure out what happened to Kennedy, because if you start your Kennedy assassination research, studying Kennedy, you're never going to understand a damn thing. I mean, Kennedy, like I've said before, is a single thread in a huge tapestry of history. And you need to see the whole thing in order to get what's going on with Kennedy. And once you see the whole picture, the whole historical picture of a hundred years and the forces that have shaped the world, you know, a lot of the finer details start to fall into place. And so that's kind of, well, huge thank you for coming on, Corey. We've, we, you know, I think Ash wants to bring get you back at some point to speak about all these <laughs> other subjects and 9-11 sure. and things like that. But thank you to you for answering all the questions. Thanks to the viewers for their questions. Let the public know where they can find you and support you, please. Uh, CoreyHughes.org. Um, and also I have a uh, private JFK supporter chat. You can get access to that uh, through buymeacoffee.com slash forbidden. Um, so, yeah, that's about it. All right, thanks very much. And we'll tomorrow night we've got the prison governor on the channel. No, Thursday night we've got the prison governor on the channel with Wild Woman. So we'll probably see some of you in the chat then. So take care out there wherever you are in the world. Thanks for watching. Cheers. <laughs>